The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Jessica Chen Weiss, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale and a fellow in the third round of the committee's Public Intellectuals Program. We will discuss her new book, Powerful Patriots, Nationalist Protest in China's Foreign Relations, just out from Oxford University Press. Jessica, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your book. Your book is particularly relevant given the 69th anniversary of the end of the anti-Japanese war, otherwise known as World War II, and the way it was observed in China yesterday. Your book examines Chinese government management of nationalist anti-foreign protests and their diplomatic consequences from 1985 to 2012. You describe a range of official responses from repression to tolerance to facilitation of such protests. Could you give us an example of each repression, tolerance, and facilitation? Thanks so much for having me here today, uh, first of all. Um, that's a great question. Um, indeed, I would say that uh, so from repression to tolerance to facilitation, those are three main categories. So, I think one of the most important examples that people tend to overlook in the repression category uh, is the 2001 EP3 incident. People like to cite that and the 1999 embassy bombing as examples of you know, when Chinese nationalism really sort of forced the leadership to be tough. Um, and in 1999, I think that was in part true. But in 2001, the Chinese government was quite uh, careful to prevent a kind of repeat of the anti-American demonstrations that spilled out into the streets and, in fact, damaged the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in two years prior. Um, and so that's one of the cases that um, I think is, is quite important as we think about just how much are the Chinese government's hands tied by nationalism and how much are they able strategically uh, to keep these in check uh, when they want to have a more cooperative or flexible uh, diplomatic policy. Um, in terms of tolerance, I think most cases, uh, tolerance is, I, I would say, when we see anti-foreign nationalist protests in China, most of the time they are being tolerated. Only rarely are they being facilitated. Um, facilitation, and I'll, maybe I'll discuss these together, facilitation tends to happen after they've tolerated them and then things started getting out of hand. And they begin to facilitate protests, say, in 1999 is another good example. So in 1999, students and others, upon learning of the news that the U.S. had bombed the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia, sought to permission to protest. And initially, uh, you know, people, some of them got permission, others just went independently, spontaneously to the embassy. And a really raucous protest was, uh, in fact, the U.S. ambassador at the time looked basically like a hostage inside the embassy, and, and the staff there, in fact, um, took the precautions of destroying some documents, afraid that the embassy would be overrun. Starting the second day, the Chinese government said this is basically unacceptable, uh, and they began to bus students and others uh, to the embassy, in fact, recruiting student leaders to you know, set quotas, ground up the bread and the water for the day, and essentially facilitating the demonstrations that then took place for the next uh, two, three, four days. Uh, that's just in Beijing, it looked a little different around the country, um, but 
that's when tolerance, I think, begins to become facilitation is when the Chinese government seeks to mitigate the risk that these have getting out of hand. Some people see allowing nationalist protests as a way for the Chinese authorities to give people space to vent their dissatisfaction with domestic issues, in effect distracting them from such divisive matters as inflation, corruption, illegal land seizure, pollution, and so on. Others say that the government is manipulating people for its own purposes, allowing protests when it's convenient and suppressing them when it isn't. You don't agree with either view. Could you explain your understanding? Mm -hmm. I agree that the, there's the truth is somewhere in between. And in particular, the idea that these are very convenient safety valves for other forms of discontent, I think is pretty misleading unless you recognize that safety valves can break. Um, and oftentimes, these types of patriotic protests, because they are more politically correct than other types of protests in China, at certain times often do attract people who are angry for all sorts of different reasons. And I think that's exactly why it's so dangerous. I don't think that um, you know, just because people have had the experience of protesting that they are then suddenly feel better about themselves and their lives and go home more content. Uh, to the extent that this might help um, the Chinese government divert attention to other issues, they then have then moved the ball into another court, which is even, one might say, even more difficult. How is it that the Chinese are supposed to actually proclaim the things that you know, kicked Japan out of the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands. You know, so I, I would say on both fronts, it's, it's pretty dangerous, a gamble. Um, you know. And then on the other hand, that the government only allows these when they are convenient, I tend to lean toward that side, but I uh, like to stay away from the word manipulation. It's not always very convenient. It's very difficult for the government to manage and walk the fine line between allowing them and, and then keeping them check after they've spilled out into the streets. So on balance, I would say that they are quite strategic and selective when these happen, but it's not like they turn the switch on and off. Um, but there is really a grassroots motor to these things, and the government is more like the traffic light. It signals when it is red, no protest, green, okay, and yellow is sort of an in-between cautionary signal. Another interpretation is that such protests are a way for the officialdom to get feedback from its citizens in a political system in which mechanisms like elections and a free media don't provide this information. How does this factor into your analysis? I think that's a pretty good analogy for protests that take place at the local level. I don't think it's as good for issues like foreign policy because I think that on those types of issues, the government has many, many tools to monitor and is actively employing them to take the pulse of nationalist citizens and others online. They don't need to let people spill out into the streets in order to gauge public opinion. Um, so it's more when there are issues which might be hidden from uh, view that protests might um, provide this useful fire alarm, uh, some people like to say. But I don't think on nationalist issues that's, that's so much the case. So if it's for more local issues, does that mean that it's the local officials who are taking the temperature, as it were, or is it at a higher level? Oftentimes it's the higher level that seeks this information out. As 
And they know local officials, in fact, are not eager to see these types of incidents take place at the local level because it hurts their promotion prospects. So if this is being used in a sort of strategic fashion, it's much more at the central level that they welcome this sort of informational mechanism. You already mentioned the 1999 NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade and the 2001 EP-3 Chinese fighter jet collision. Could you set the stage for the two? What was going on in China, in the U.S., and in the relationship between the two countries that made the Chinese response to nationalist protest so different in these two incidents? In 1999, the Chinese government was in a pretty different context than in 2001. It was the end of the Clinton administration, and China was striving to get into the World Trade Organization. And But there had been a series of sort of insults that China perceived uh, coming at the, right before the embassy bombing. First was then-President Bill Clinton's decision to put off a deal on the WTO, uh, even though Premier Zhuangji had traveled to the United States for the purpose of seeking such a deal. And then the Kosovo War had begun over the objections of China and Russia. And uh, in that context, with the bombing and the deaths of uh, Chinese citizens uh, then working at the embassy uh, in Yugoslavia, uh, my understanding from reading cases the memoirs of foreign ministry officials and others in China, that this was something, like, this could not be tolerated. China needed uh, to send a signal that it could not be bullied uh, on the international stage. Two years later, China faced a very different U.S. administration as George W. Bush had just come into office and particularly campaigned on taking a much tougher position uh, towards China than, than Clinton had. And this was before the September 11th attacks, when it might it might have been China that was the next you know, number one enemy of the United States. And China had, in the months preceding uh, the EP3 collision, had sent high-level officials to the United States to establish sort of a rapport with the new Bush administration and had been pretty pleased with the progress that they had made. So when this collision occurred, the Chinese government was not eager to see it uh, become a full crisis in U.S.-China relations, and uh, despite some early, uh, I would say, missteps, perhaps because of intelligence China had gotten from military officials, uh, pretty quickly the Chinese government made uh, efforts to reach a compromise, a face-saving solution, uh, and try to prevent the Bush administration from seizing upon this crisis. Turning now to Japan, where you spend quite a lot of the book, it seems that 1985 marked a turning point in Chinese-Japanese relations. Prior to 85, mutual compromise on territorial and geostrategic issues seemed to be the name of the game. Although the way I read it, read your descriptions, it seemed that Japan was doing much of the compromising and conciliatory behavior, not so much China, but that's a different issue. After 85, when Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone visited the Yasukuni Shrine on the 40th anniversary of the defeat of Japan at the end of World War II, things changed. China saw the visit and other actions as upsetting the previous pattern of compromise. Could you describe what happened or the Chinese perception of what happened? 
So Prime Minister Nakasone in 1985 did something that other Japanese prime ministers had done before, which was to pay a visit to the Asakuni Shrine, and even on the sensitive date of August 15th, uh, Japan's uh, surrender in World War II. Um, but he did so in a way that sort of signified to China that this was a new direction in Japanese foreign policy, in particular one that wasn't as uh, sort of um, concerned with the reactions from Japan's Asian neighbors. In particular, he just had appointed a committee to determine that that visit uh, was constitutional. Um, and so, you know, what exactly at the bottom of all the symbolic politics, it, at any rate, it was um, a time at which there were there was a lot of student unrest in China and concern with the economic conditions, um, in particular inflation and corruption, although corruption then was nothing compared to what it is today. Uh, nonetheless, um, these, this visit was the spark for a series of demonstrations uh, that accused Japan of launching a second invasion, an economic invasion uh, of China and, and really uh, erupted that fall. So given the anxieties about Japanese intentions, economic intentions. Do you think things would have erupted even if he hadn't visited the shrine? Would something else have sparked mm. protests? I think that there's no question that other things would have sparked student protests. In fact, they predated and um, followed um, the anti-Japanese protests that fall. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think Japan would have necessarily been so much the brunt of uh, those uh, student protests had he not uh, paid such an uh, obvious visit in an official capacity uh, to the shrine. How do you think that the protests of spring 1989, the June 4th crackdown, and the international response affected, if they did affect, official Chinese responses to subsequent nationalist demonstrations? Well, for the entire decade that followed in the 1990s, China took a very uh, repressive attitude toward nationalist mobilization. And in part, that was because they were very concerned about you know, preserving social stability, but it was also because they were trying to break out of the international isolation that China found itself in after the crackdown on June 4th and the ensuing international sanctions. So it was this combination, these domestic and international factors that really spelled a very difficult time for activists inside of China who wanted, say, to demand compensation from Japan, who were unhappy uh, with the state of bilateral relations. Is there a relationship then between nationalist anti-foreign protest and domestic activism? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a really interesting question, and you often don't see a lot of overlap between those who mobilize on nationalist issues and those that mobilize on more domestic issues like the environment or schooling, uh, forced demolitions. And I think that's in part because it's very risky to do so. Um, those who um, are ostensibly nationalists often say, we don't touch domestic issues because if they were to do so, they would be seen as even more uh, sensitive in the activities that they organize. Um, and on the other side of the coin, liberals are often especially in recent years, uh, quite wary of the, the sort of very, what they see as a manipulated form of, of political expression. Back in 2010, uh, the, you know, the famous artist and dissident Ai Weiwei uh, tweeted that if there was a protest, if it was against Japan, that he would be there. But by uh, 2012, many uh, 
these liberals were much more uh, wary of, of the government's facilitation in some cases of anti-Japanese protests uh, and had wanted nothing to do with them. And so I think that there is, there's actually a lot more overlap between the ideals uh, espoused by many of these nationalists. Many of them are um, upset at the government for overlooking the individual interests, particularly of victims uh, of the war, and not pursuing uh, demands for compensation. Uh, but nonetheless, there is this, I think, this induced separation where people who mobilize on one issue, set of issues, don't link up with those on the other uh, for fear of uh, triggering repression. Do you think there's a class element to it? Is it better educated, perhaps wealthier people who are taking part in the nationalist, the international issue demonstrations, and the people who are demonstrating on domestic issues? Mm -hmm. There I would just draw a distinction between the participants and the organizers of these demonstrations. I think the organizers are often quite well educated on nationalist issues, but the participants span uh, the whole spectrum, um, from migrant workers to college students to white-collar workers to veterans even. Uh, and so the folks that get drawn in, to this they do tend to be more of an urban phenomenon, whereas other forms of protest are often rural as well as urban. Um, but, you know, we really don't have wonderful data on either of these questions, and so something that I'm actually involved in looking at in the future. Because if you think that the nationalist protests are, by and large, students, which may be a misperception, then you would think maybe better educated, wealthier people. Um, a very interesting aspect of your book, and maybe too much to bite off right now just because we're running out of time, is your description of how government perceptions can differ widely and how much those different perceptions matter. When you're talking about the Diaoyu Senkaku issue, you write, in hindsight, signals from both sides were misinterpreted. Japanese officials underestimated Chinese opposition. The Chinese should have sent less ambiguous signals. Could you talk about how such misunderstandings and misperceptions developed and what might be done to avoid them in the future? Because they do seem very dangerous. Absolutely. I thought this was something that the Chinese government had wrestled with in 1999 when, again, with those protests, you had people on both sides of the aisle accusing China of either having orchestrated these protests or others saying, no, this was really something that the Chinese government had, was helpless uh, to prevent. Um, you know, so, but here we are in 2014, and just a couple of years ago, we saw the same debate playing out in Japan. And I think the root of the problem really is the sort of the structure of the Chinese education and media system. The fact that there is sort of selective um, censorship and um, you know, that there is an official history that cannot be challenged means that it's very difficult uh, for outside observers to determine the authenticity of these national sentiments when they emerge. In fact, Prime Minister Abe said as much that he blamed the basically decades of patriotic education in China for essentially brainwashing uh, the Chinese masses. Um, and I think that neglects the real history and, and feeling that exists in China, but without um, more freedom um, of expression in China, where people can feel free to debate that history, uh, it, well, I think will remain a big challenge for the Chinese government to convince uh, outsiders that these sentiments are real um, 
So the misperception on the foreign side, the non-Chinese side, you think stems from a puzzlement at best over whether the sentiments are genuine or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's often easy to caricature these protests either as oh, they were bust in, they were rent-a-crowd mobs. Uh, and that, that's, I think, we should be not be that naive. Worth looking under the surface uh, to try to understand what are the real concerns uh, being expressed, and oftentimes those are an amalgam of different concerns, um, both nationalist as well as more domestic in society. We saw you know, concerns about corruption and housing on display in both the 2010 and the 2012 anti-Japanese protests, uh, but that doesn't uh, mean that these are sort of you know, easy for the Chinese government to ignore. And so I would. I think a more nuanced portrait uh, is, is important. We should stay away from seeing these either uh, as completely manufactured or something that the Chinese government is helpless uh, to control. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I could go on asking you questions about this very interesting book for a long time. But thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.